it's very interesting to look at the way the scripture is structured and what the structure means for how we approach interpreting it. One of the things that's always interesting to do is to compare the order of the Hebrew books in the Old Testament with the Christian ones. The original order was the Hebrew order, and they don't follow the same order our books do. The Hebrew literature in the Old Testament tends to follow theme and category of the genre. The Christians reorganized it to make it more chronological and historical. Sort of. We always interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament revelation of Jesus. Something we point out a lot here in your church when I visit. And similarly and conversely and equally, we interpret the New Testament revelation of Jesus in light of the Old Testament Hebrew background. We interpret the rest of the Bible through the prism of the epistles. Think of the epistles as an inspired commentary. I hold the Holy Ghost commentary on the rest of the Bible. If you want to know what Leviticus means, well, you begin by reading Hebrews. If you want to know what the law, the Torah means, you begin by reading Romans and Galatians. If you want to know what the Gospels mean, what the teachings of Jesus mean, look at what the Apostles said they mean. The Apostles tell us what Jesus meant. A lot of the things that mislead Christians today, and always have, are taking the words of Jesus out of context and misunderstanding them. Not always with a bad motive, sometimes instead of ignorance. For instance, there's people who will take a verse out of the Sermon on the Mount, whatever you ask, you'll receive, speaking you'll find. Okay. Now what did Jesus mean? Well, some people will just take that in isolation of the rest of the Bible and say we can name and claim anything. However, when we read it in light of what the apostles said he meant, James said, if you ask with a wrong or selfish motive, don't expect to get it. You ask what you don't receive. John says, if we ask according to his will. But people just like to take what Jesus said according to their understanding. Instead of to the understanding that Jesus and the Holy Spirit gave the apostles. The apostles explain what Jesus meant. It is wrong to read the Gospels without reading them in light of what the epistle says. Okay? We always read the Gospels in light of what the Apostles said Jesus meant. We have the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but John is different. John and Matthew were more Jewish in character, more Hebraic, more oriented towards toward the Jewish readership, okay, than Mark or Luke. There is Jewish material in Luke, but when Luke puts Jewish material in his gospel that's not in the other gospels, it's only because he's trying to teach Jewish things about a Jewish Messiah to non-Jews. The reason you'll find certain Jewish material in Luke that you won't find in John or Matthew, even though John and Matthew are written to Jews, is because Jews already would have known the background. Gentiles had to have it explained to them. Luke was, of course, a Gentile who converted to Judaism before he was saved. But John is different again. John, like Matthew, is more Jewish than the other Gospels. But it is also one that deals with the deity of Christ, the nature of the Godhead, and the person of the Holy Spirit the most. 
John's Gospel is the most Christological and pneumatological. It deals most with the person of Jesus Christ and the person of the Holy Spirit. Okay. John's Gospel is also the most festal. Festal. It's probably more Jewish than Matthew. It's the most... I had the same problem last evening. John is the most Judaic, although an argument could be made for Matthew. Okay? It's the most Christological, and it's the most pneumological. From the Greek word pneuma for spirit. In other words, it deals most, most with the person of Christ and most with the Holy Spirit. Okay. It's the most festal. And this, in part, connects with this. Whenever a Jew went to Jerusalem, whether he approached it from the north, south, east, or west, it didn't matter. He always said, go up. Like the Psalms of Ascent, let's go up to Zion, let's go up to Zion. I rejoiced when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. You come from the north, you're still going up. Doesn't matter what direction, okay? John's Gospel always has Jesus either on his way to Jerusalem for a, a, a pilgrim feast, or on his way back. All the stories of John, he's either heading for Jerusalem or coming back, okay? It's the most Jerusalem-centered, okay? And there's reasons for this. But in addition to all that, John is the most passion-oriented. or what Christians might call Paschal. Like from Passover. 48% of the verses in John are concerned with the last week of Jesus' life. Passion, what Christians call Passion Week. Getting ready for the Jewish Passover and Passover week. Okay? It's the most Paschal, and it's the most Passion. It deals the most. Half, half the book deals with the crucifixion and death of Jesus and the events leading up to it and surrounding it. Half the verses. Okay. It puts more emphasis on these things than the other Gospels. But there's something else unique about John. It records, in proportionate terms, the most of Jesus' words. It begins in John chapter 13. From John 13, from verse 12 through verse 21, you have Jesus' words. Jesus' words. In John chapter 13, verse 12 to 21. Only some other words. Verse 26 is more of Jesus' words. Verse 27 has more of Jesus' words. But then from verse 31 of John 13, verse 31 all the way to the end of chapter 17. From John 13, 31, remember there's no chapter divisions in the original Greek manuscripts. 
John 13, 31, all the way to the end of chapter 17, it's almost nothing but Jesus talking. The odd verse here and there of somebody else saying something or just describing the background. Even before that, earlier in John 13, technically it can begin in verse 12, but certainly verse 31, all the way to the end of 17, is Jesus talking. You have half a verse in 36, John 13, 36, and, and verse 37, dedicated to Peter. In the entire chapter of John 14, only one verse is somebody else talking, other than Jesus, in verse 8. Verse 15, not one word by anybody except Jesus. Chapter 16, one verse describing the background in verse 17, and in verse 19. Two verses describing the background and, and what people were saying in verses 29 and 30. All the rest of those 33 verses is Jesus talking. John 17, the entire chapter is Jesus talking. Nobody else but him. Longer altogether than the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain. The Sermon on the Mount would be the second. This would even be longer. Just Jesus talking. This big long discourse before he's going to be killed. And remember, when somebody's going to be killed, you don't talk about small talk. Okay. Now, it's different than the other epistles, uh, the other gospels. In John, the eschatology in John tends to be cryptic. It has Cryptic eschatology. If you're a new Christian, eschatology is the study of the last days from eschaton. Okay? John talks repeatedly. Jesus infers things repeatedly in John's Gospel about the last days, but it's cryptic. Okay? Matthew, Mark, Luke, he speaks directly. Galilee discourse. When John speaks of the last days, it's cryptic. It's almost hidden. Look at John chapter 5. Verse 43, I've come in my Father's name. You do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. Now that's a double prophecy. He's alluding to Simon bar Kokhba, a false messiah who would come in the second century. But he's making a prophecy about the Antichrist. The Jews will be conned into thinking the Antichrist will either. You see, he, he, it's cryptic. He makes the statement, it's there to those who see but it's not a big discourse about it. John repeatedly has stuff like this about the last days. It has eschatology, but eschatology is cryptic. Okay. I wouldn't say mystical, but cryptic. But this big, long discourse of Jesus ends with the high priestly prayer in John 17. It follows what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. He speaks his pneumatology, the pneumatology of Jesus. Jesus' doctrine of the Holy Spirit is found in John. And he begins in chapter 14. The Holy Spirit is the paraclete in verse 16. That is the spirit of truth. <coughs> so the first thing that Jesus says about the Holy Spirit is that he's our helper. Paraclete is the Greek word parakletos. If you're in trouble with the law... He was the person who sat next to you the way a, a, 
almost a lawyer would and encourage you, okay, even when you were guilty. Okay? The Holy Spirit knows our sinful nature. He convicts us of sin and gives us, we, we grieve Him. But even though we grieve Him with our sin, He still helps us and encourages us, okay? Jesus begins talking about the Holy Spirit as our paraclete, our helper, but immediately says, He's the Spirit of truth. You have this tension in the Holy Spirit. Fallen man will compromise truth. Man would say, your friend wouldn't tell you the truth (laughs) if it's going to hurt your relationship. God says, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to stand by you anyway. You're as guilty as Gehenna, but I'm going to help you anyway and tell you the truth. God never makes love or truth mutually exclusive. Philippians 1.9 Love can only abound if there's real truth. Truth and discernment. Without truth and discernment, you can't have real love. Political correctness says you compromise truth and discernment for the sake of love. God says, no, you can't have real love without truth and discernment. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Okay, He's our helper, but he's the spirit of truth. So before Jesus goes on telling what the Holy Spirit is going to do, he says he's the spirit of truth. Verse 26, the helper will come, and (coughs) the Father will send to my name. He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all I said. One is our teacher who's in heaven. The Holy Spirit is the vehicle of God, is a person who's also a vehicle, who communicates Jesus to us. He reminds us about Jesus. He's the presence of Christ in us. And he interprets the words of Jesus for us. But it begins with the truth. Why is he the spirit of truth? Because he's the spirit of Jesus. And Jesus is the truth. But then Jesus says, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is the truth. Jesus is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. His word is the truth, which the Holy Spirit inspired to be written and interprets. He's the truth. His word is the truth, because he's the word, isn't he? The word became flesh. And the Spirit's the Spirit of truth. Jesus, the Bible, and the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on talking about the Holy Spirit. And all this exhortation. Chapter 16 is Jesus' pneumatology. It's the heart of his teaching about the Holy Ghost. And he says many things about the Holy Spirit. Things which were hard for the disciples to understand, including that it was to their advantage he would go away. Because the Holy Spirit would dwell in them once he went away. And then he continues at the end of his big discourse with the high priestly prayer. And in verse 16, (coughs) in chapter 17 of John, this is what he says. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Unless people are grounded in the word of God, they are not set apart unto God. They're not holy. If someone is experiential in their doctrine, they're not sanctified. As thou sent me into the world, I've sent them, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves may be sanctified in truth. 
You're not really sanctified by the Holy Ghost unless what you believe is true. It begins with the truth in chapter 14, and he keeps coming back to this idea of the truth. Verse 20, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for also those who believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. That they may also be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. You have here something in John, which is another feature. John is the most Trinitarian of the Gospels. In other words, the oneness in the church should reflect the oneness of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Okay? The oneness of Jesus and the Word. In John 6, the Word became flesh in John 1. John 6, the Word. The oneness of Jesus and the Word. The oneness of the Trinity. The oneness of God Himself should be reflected through our oneness. But notice repeatedly, right from the beginning, this unity, this unity of the Spirit, depends on truth. If it's not real truth, it's not real unity. You can have unity. You can even call it a spiritual unity. But it's not the unity of the Spirit. Today, people are talking about all kinds of things. We have to be one so the world will believe. We have to get rid of denominational barriers. We have to have one church, like the early church did. Okay? One. They make a God out of unity. Jesus is the truth. The Holy Spirit is the truth. The Word of God is the truth. When you elevate unity above truth, your God is no longer truth. Your God is unity. You understand? That was the Tower of Babel. That will be the Babylon of Revelation. That's the humanism. That's the United Nations, the League of Nations. That's, that's, that'll be the ultimate trick of the Antichrist. Making unity a god. But it's an idol. By taking what Jesus said out of context, they could make it seem like the Christian cause. Okay? I once had a socialist candidate from the European Parliament in England tell me I wasn't a true Christian because I didn't believe in socialism. <laughs> you don't believe in brotherhood and unity. You're not a Christian. Jesus taught brotherhood. <laughs> he didn't teach his kind. <coughs> okay. Now. Real unity of the Spirit depends on truth. If what you believe is not the truth, there is no unity of the Holy Spirit. But today, truth is sacrificed for the sake of this so-called unity. The world will never believe unless we're one. 
Chuck Colson pushes this line. Peter Creek pushes this line. Now Bill Bright, Campus Crusades are pushing this line. Forget about doctrine. Forget about this, that, Billy Graham Crusades are pushing this line. Truth is increasingly being sacrificed for unity based on John 17. Except in John 17, and what leads up to John 17, Jesus says over and over and over that the unity depends on the truth. No, we get rid of the truth for the sake of the unity. For the world will believe. Believe what? Not the gospel. Another verse you want to look is again Philippians 1.9. Love can only abound where there is real knowledge of the Scriptures and real discernment. The fact that there's people who are liberal Protestants who are not saved have a social gospel, surely social. The fact that there's people in Roman Catholicism who believe a different gospel, that you're saved by sacraments, and by atoning for your own sin in purgatory, we have to interpret what Jesus said in light of what the Apostles said. Look at Galatians chapter 1. Verse 8. But even though we or an angel up from heaven should preach to you another gospel, a gospel contrary to this one, let him be accursed. Anathema. As we said, so I say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you have received, let him be accursed. The gospel of liberal Protestantism is another gospel. It is accursed. Not only that, but the people who preach it are accursed. Christians do good works to help the poor because we've been saved, not in order to get saved. Okay. You're going to atone in purgatory for your own sins? The Bible says the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. Are you saved by being born again, or are you saved by ex opere operato rituals performed by a virtual, virtually pagan priesthood? Different gospel. Not only is it a curse, but the people who preach it are a curse. Yet, in the name of unity, forget about that. We just go by what Jesus said, not by what Jesus meant. What they're doing is going by what Jesus said, not by what he meant. In other words, by what they think he said, not by what he actually was saying and did say. To know what he did say, you have to look at what the Holy Apostles said he really said. What he really meant. This is going to be a bigger and bigger and bigger issue. Churches who will not go down this line, as you know, are going to be seen as divisive. There is something wrong with you spiritually. If you won't unite with the Roman Church, if you won't compromise truth in the name of unity, there's something wrong with your pastor. If he won't join the ministers fraternal, 
If you won't be part of ecumenical organizations, there's something wrong with you. You don't really, you're not of God's spirit if you don't have unity. <laughs> now, if they really understood what Jesus was saying in context, and if they looked what the apostles said about what Jesus said, they would realize it's they who don't have the Holy Spirit. He's the spirit of truth. He's not the spirit of error. The scriptures speak of the spirit of error and contrast him to the Holy Spirit. The spirit of error is, is, is demonic. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. The opposite of truth is error. It's demonic. What these people have is something demonic. They're on the road to Babylon. They're again building the Tower of Babel. And they're doing it in the name of Christian unity. This comes about the following way. The devil is clever. Let me tell you how he operates. It is without doubt that the judgment of God is inevitable because of the genocidal atrocity of abortion. It is without doubt homosexual influence taking over the schools, and he said, and certainly it already has the media, the fashion industry, etc. Advertising industry, the things that control men's souls. Well, how are we going to stop this? Well, Catholics are against abortion. Catholics are against homosexuality. Forget that half <laughs> that one out of five Roman priests admits he is a homosexual. That, that's unimportant. They seem to become natural allies in the cause of saving society. We have to unite so the world will believe. We have to stop this evil. From, you see how it works? Deception. All you do is get rid of one evil for another. There's no gospel. People are not going to be saved by the true gospel. Society is going to degenerate anyway. You're not going to stop. You know what? I oppose abortion. I oppose homosexuality. But I do these things second to the gospel. The first and foremost weapon in opposing homosexuality is seeing homosexuals get saved. The first and foremost weapon, the first and foremost weapon in fighting abortion is seeing those mothers and those, those obstetricians get saved. Then we do the other. No, 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 no. We have to unite to save society, save the world. <laughs> the world can't be saved. The world is under God's judgment. What does Jesus say? Look at John 17. When he talks about this, does he say to save the world? No. He says, the ones who have given me out of the world. <laughs> he doesn't tell us to compromise the truth to save the world. He says to unite in the truth to get out of here. Okay. And we're called to be salt and light and to prevent the judgment from falling. But when you compromise truth, you're not being salt and light anymore. Let's look further now. That's one way people get into it. They see anybody who's against abortion, who's against pornography on television, who's against homosexuality, we can unite with them. Unless somebody has a real conviction of the Holy Ghost that you can only get by being saved, you can't trust their moral values. 
Look at the Senator Lieberman, an Orthodox Jew. He was against partial birth abortion. And he was getting down on Hollywood's case about the, the pornography going to the kids. Until he gets nominated, and then he needs Hollywood's contributions, and he has to be on a ticket that's pro-partial birth abortion, all of a sudden, he begins playing the fiddle with the other hand. Why? Because he's not a believer. He's worried that he's, he's, he's judges is public opinion. It's not God. But they compromise this, thinking we're going to save society. You can't save society without the gospel. We can't be salt and light. The world can't be saved anyway. But we can at least prevent this from getting worse as a witness. And we can still preserve what's preservable by being salt and light. But once the gospel goes, you can't even do that. You have to get you to compromise truth. The second way it happens is this. Leaders, good leaders, decent leaders, not bad men, good men with right motives. Men who are good, but in some respect, naive and undiscerning. They will take attitudes like this. Well, the first and foremost defense against error is the knowledge of the truth. I will just teach the truth and let God worry about the error. That is a false wisdom. It is true to say that the first and foremost defense against error is the knowledge of the truth. That is true. But every one of Israel's prophets wrote the correct error. One-third of the teaching of Jesus was oriented towards correcting the error of the day in the Jewish religion. First Corinthians was written to correct error. The Epistle to James, written to correct error. Galatians, written to correct error. <coughs> First Thessalonians, written to correct error. <coughs> Jude, the correct error. Biblical theology, <coughs> doctrinal theology of the Bible, has a balance. You may have heard me point this out. There's a proactive and a reactive. Proactive is when you simply expound the scriptures to teach the truth. Reactive is when you correct error. The most divisive issue in the early church was the purpose of the law, the circumcision of Gentiles. That was the most divisive issue. You see in Acts and so on. In Romans, Paul deals with that problem or the problem of the law proactively in Romans. He wasn't trying to correct error in Romans. He was simply trying to show how the law is fulfilled in Christ and points to Jesus. But in Galatians, he deals with the same issue Reactively, in Galatians, he tries to correct error. This idea that we only teach the truth and not correct error is simply not biblical. If that was the case, two-thirds of the Old Testament and two-thirds of the New Testament would not be in the Bible. It's simply... Not realistic. Every prophet was calling Israel back to the Torah. Everyone. 
So that's the second way it happens. One, you look in desperation at the moral plight of society and you look for natural allies because of the social evils. And the gospel becomes compromised to save society. You look for a moral majority. The second is preachers, leaders who misunderstand the structure of Scripture. The biblical theology is proactive and reactive. Now be careful of people who are purely reactive. You know, the so-called discernment ministries, all they do is look for error. They never preach the gospel. They never expound doctrine or do anything like we did last night, for instance. It's always just going after error. Eventually, these people tend to turn on each other. They go on witch hunts. They become McCarthyists, <laughs> evangelical McCarthyists. In Northern Ireland, there are these ultra-Calvinistic Protestants. Everything they say about the Roman Catholic Church is true. But the only way to know what those people are for is based on what they're against. They're always going, what they say about Roman churches is, 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 is true, but that's their obsession. There's no balance. Be careful of those who are only reactive, or only reactive, but be co-equally aware of those who are only proactive. The third thing that happens is this. They misunderstand putting grain into the toxic stew. Story of Elisha. Yeah, there was poison in the stew, but when the grain was put into it, it stopped being poisoned. Notice in the context that Elisha did not compromise with any false prophet to turn the toxic stew into healthy stew, into, into, into safe stew. He did not compromise his doctrine, his belief, or his integrity. Secondly, once he put the grain into the toxic stew, it stopped being toxic. There are those today who believe that they have to go on some of the Christian TV stations with men who, run by men who are heretics, who they know are heretics. Because if they weren't there, there'd be no grain going into the stew. At a Calvary Chapel pastor's conference in Hawaii less than a month ago, Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel denounced Benny Hinn by name. To his credit. Yet, he still will go on TVN, which is the Benny Hinn fan club, appearing on the same platform with Benny Hinn's sponsors. Well, that's logically inconsistent. His idea is, well, we have to bring some Christian influence into this, otherwise there'd be nothing good. When the Lord leads you to put grain into a poison stew, you don't have to compromise the false prophets to do it. Plus, it would stop being poison. Has the TBN or, or 700 Club changed one bit? Have Charles Stanley or, or Chuck Smith or, or Josh McDowell made one bit of difference? No. The only thing they've done is this. Make us all look like conniving heretics. When unsafe people watch these TV stations, they think, oh, the born-again con men. born again is a household joke. Now, if true Christians were standing up and saying, we have nothing to do with these people, we will not be associated with them, then we could say to the world, wait a minute, that's not the real gospel, that's not real born-again. He's a con man. 
But when you get on the same platform with them, that's not guilt by association. That's guilt by cooperation. A young believer in Calvary Chapel will see one heretic after another. They'll see Benny Hinn saying that the, the three persons, uh, nine persons in the Trinity. You'll see Jan Paul Krauss calling doctrine excrement. Now, doctrine in the Bible is the teaching of Jesus. The Greek word the basket. He actually called the teaching of Jesus human excrement. Oh, it must be all right because Pastor Chuck is on there. You understand? Well, Josh McDowell thinks it's all right, and I got saved through reading evidence that demands a verdict. See what it does. You're not going to stop that toxic student from being toxic. Elisha didn't compromise with people like that to put the grain into the poison stew. You compromise truth for the sake of unity. With this in view, let's understand how this works. Turn with me, please, to 1 Kings chapter 21. You had two leaders. The leader of Israel, the ten tribes, the big leader, was Ahab. A bad king with a bad wife. The leader of the south, where the house of David was, was different. He was not a bad king. His name was Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, Jehovah shall judge, Jehovah is judge. He was a good king, a righteous man. But his kingdom was the small one. Israel was richer and bigger. Judah was smaller and poorer. But it was Judah who had the ark of the Lord, and it was Judah who had the real presence of the Holy Spirit, the Shekinah, and it was Judah who had the real lineage of David, which is the Old Testament <coughs> type of the heritage of Jesus. Okay? <coughs> Ahab undergoes a repentance. <coughs> but he was married to a woman called Jezebel. Now, Jesus tells us in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, you tolerate the woman Jezebel. As we looked at last night, she, above all the other wicked women in the Bible, typifies spiritual harlotry, seduction. Okay? You tolerate the woman Jezebel. She seduces my servants. When you are married to Jezebel, you have a problem. If you really repent, you get rid of your wife. Okay? You really repent, you get rid of Jezebel. But he didn't. He tolerated the woman Jezebel. When you see people fooling around with false religions, like the Greek Orthodox Church, the Roman Church, now you even have people saying we have common ground with the Mormons. That Baptist scholar Craig Blomberg Former President Jimmy Carter, because he's a saved Baptist, saying that the Mormons are Christians. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, you're dead. She will always, as Jesus said, 
seduce the Lord's servants. Every time. If you really repent, you'll get rid of her. Ahab didn't get rid of her. In chapter 21, verse 29, do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. But every time these guys repent, they come back worse. Benny Hinn repented of saying Job was a disgusting carnal man. Benny Hinn repented of saying there was nine persons in the Trinity. Benny Hinn repented of saying, never say thy will be done. Benny Hinn repented of his lavish lifestyle. Two months later, he's bringing all his staff to fly Concord. $10,000 a shot or something like this. Less than two months later, next thing you know, he's practicing the sin of necromancy. Next thing you know, he's involved with the, and the laughing, the, 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 the thing. No repentance. If anybody is crazy enough to say that there was nine persons in the Trinity, never say thy will be done, although Jesus said thy will be done, and that Job was a disgusting carnal man, whatever, anybody who taught that and really repented would get out of the ministry. He'd say, I didn't know what I was talking about. I'm unqualified to be a minister. Those who are in leadership must be able to rightly divide the word of God. Paul says must be able to teach. He isn't. If he repented, he would have got out. Secondly, he would have stopped teaching heresy. But he didn't. It got worse. But there was a naive leader. Verse 20, chapter 22, verse 1. Three years passed without war between Adam and Israel. And it came about in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. Now the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you not know that Ramat Gilead belongs to us and we are still doing nothing to take it out of the hands of the king of Aram? And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramat Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Forget about that he's married to Jezebel. Unity. We must be one so others will see we're one and will have the victory. Misunderstanding John 17 was a problem that was around long before John 17. There is nothing in the New Testament that is not in the Old Testament, believe me. Nothing. New covenant, yes. New truth, no. It's all in we're one. We're both Hebrews. We have the same God. We have the same opponents. Forget about what you believe. Forget about what your wife is. Remember, she's a picture of spiritual seduction in Revelation. Forget about that. We're one. The second characteristic of a false leader is this. The first is his repentances will be false. His repentances will either be false or short-lived. If his repentance was real, he would have got rid of Jezebel 
and amended his ways. When he gets in trouble, he repents, but then he's back doing the same thing again. That's the first characteristic. His repentances are false, forced, and short-lived, if you're sincere at all. The second characteristic of a false leader like this is they have an agenda. And the agenda is theirs, not God's. They have an agenda. And the agenda is their agenda. It is not God's. He is only trying to gain credibility and power for himself by aligning himself with a decent man. That is why you see TBN trying to court the endorsement and get other people on it. That's why you see Charisma Magazine wants to get David Wilkerson on the cover. They want to give themselves a credibility. They want to give themselves access to the resources of others to achieve things they couldn't do themselves. But it's not God's agenda. They have an agenda. They always have an agenda. And they talk about unity as the way to do it. Let's continue. Israel, please inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go up against Ramat Gilead to battle, or shall, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up. For the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Now, Jehoshaphat was not completely naive. He was not completely understanding. Either are men like Josh McDowell, or Charles Stanley, or Chuck Smith. They're not completely naive. Jehoshaphat said, Is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He is Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. And the king of Israel called an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. And Micaiah is similar to the name Michael. Michael is he who was like unto God. Micaiah is like he was like unto Yahweh. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, two of them, were sitting each on his throne, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. Then Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah, uh, Hananah, I have to read the Hebrew, uh, Hananah, made horns of iron for himself and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall gore the Arameans until they are consumed. And the prophets were prophesying thus, saying, Go up to Ramat Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will give it into your hands. Then the messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Behold now the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. That is the third characteristic of a false leader. His first characteristic is false or 
short-lived repentance. Okay, that's the first. His second characteristic, he has an agenda not of God. His third characteristic is he will surround himself or herself with cheerleaders, with people who will tell him what he wants to hear. He will surround himself with yes men who will not only tell him what he wants to hear, but try to convince others that this is what God is really saying. He'll surround himself with false prophets who are, in effect, cheerleaders. Can a cheerleader make a crummy football team like the Pittsburgh Steelers win a game? They can charge the fans up all they want. Those girls who go out there with those pom-poms and do the somersaults and sing the songs and get everybody worked up. But is that going to make a crummy team play well against a good team? No, it isn't. They lost four straight. They're not going to do nothing. You can cheer all you want. But the job of the cheerleader is to convince the type of the team what they want to hear. You can do it, boys. And get the people to cheer and believe they're going to win. But they're not going to win. They're a crummy team. They're not going to win because they're no good. Notice that Micaiah is outnumbered 400 to 1. True prophets will always be greatly outnumbered. Most people never heard of a Han- uh, Hananiah. But everybody remembers Jeremiah. Ezekiel, Amos, Jeremiah, Micaiah, they were all greatly outnumbered. But theirs are the only names who were remembered in posterity. <laughs> it was only their prophecies that will matter in eternity. They wrote the Bible. The word of the Lord endures forever. The words of Jeremiah will live forever. God's word in him. The false prophets. What? 400 to 1? Can 400 be right and 1 be wrong? That's the way it works. It's manipulation. Don't listen to him. He has a wrong spirit. Look at all these guys saying we're going to win. <laughs> How can all these people be wrong and one, one, one be right? He must be the wrong one. How many people said Pensacola was not of God? 400 to 1? <laughs> and the assemblies of God as one example? Always be like that. The outnumber, the odds will be against the truth. Yes, men. False prophets. Yes, men. False prophets. That's the third characteristic. Let's look further. What happens?
They tried to manipulate Micaiah to tell the truth, to tell what they want to hear. Please let your word be like the word of one of them. Please go along with this. Please go along with Pensacola or whatever the latest thing is. Alpha courses, please say it's God. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, I'll speak. When he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramat Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he said to him, go up and succeed. The Lord will give it into your hand. He said, this doesn't sound right. He's just telling me what I want to hear. He doesn't usually do this. Then the king said to him, how many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Notice that. The false leader really knows something is wrong with him. Remember, these people, it says in Timothy, they are deceiving and being deceived. Oh, they're being deceived. But they are deceiving. Let's look at Timothy. First Timothy, chapter 2. I'm sorry, Second Timothy, my mistake. Chapter 3 of Second Timothy. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse in the last days. Deceiving and being deceived. And it tells you in the context that they don't accept Scripture. Is Benny Hinn deceiving? Yes. And is he being deceived? Yes. It's both. Let's look now how these men deceive and are being deceived. These men are deceiving and being deceived. They know something is wrong. Notice, he doesn't admit this to the king of Israel. He doesn't admit it to the 400 cheerleaders. He only admits it to the true prophet. I guarantee you, I know, when honest men have encountered Benny Hinn face to face, he admitted he was wrong about certain things. Let's see what happens next. Verse 17, so he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep. We have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you he did not prophesy good concerning me but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. And all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and his left. And the Lord said, Who will go up and entice Ahab to go fall at Ramat Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. Then a spirit came forward, it was a lying spirit, and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, How? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, You are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. How is he deceiving? That's obvious. 
How is he being deceived? The worst demonic deception, the most deadly, final, no hope demonic deception, it's not when the devil deceives us. Sin can deceive us, we're told. Sin, sin itself has the power to deceive. It can almost personify it. And demons, the demonic deception, demons can deceive. But the most deadly form of deception is when God sends the deception. The Lord dispatches a lying spirit. You want to believe false prophets? Oh, I'll send you a false prophet. Turn with me, please, to Second Thessalonians chapter two. Remember, Jesus is the truth. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth. The Word of God is truth. Jesus is the truth. The way, the truth, the life. You don't love the Bible. You don't love Jesus. You don't love the truth of God's Word. You don't love Jesus Christ. Based on what he said, Paul Crouch cannot possibly love Jesus Christ. He said doctrine is excellent. The Baskin, the teaching of Jesus, is excellent. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Teaching of Jesus with excrement? Then you're saying Jesus with excrement because he is the word. For this reason, chapter 2, verse 11, God will send upon them a deluding influence that they may believe what is false in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. When you see people who do not love the truth, that means they don't love Christ. When you see people who refuse to believe the truth, refuse to believe the truth, they are taking pleasure in wickedness. The reason they refuse to believe the truth is because they take pleasure in wickedness. When it goes that far, God sends a deception. This is not talking about unsaved people. The devil already has the world to They'll follow the Antichrist tomorrow. Global economy goes down the tubes. Somebody comes along promising them prosperity. They'll take that mark in a minute. They they, they love the world. They'll take it in a minute. The devil already has them. This is talking about the apostasy, the falling away, the apostasia. It's talking about so-called people in the church. The man of lawlessness in verse 3. Paul and the Hebrew prophet Zechariah both call the Antichrist God's agent. God will send him. You want to believe a lie? Forget about sin. Okay, sin deceiving us, sin deceives. That's bad. That's dangerous. Demons deceiving? Yes, demons can deceive us. But when God sends the demon, that is a judgment. Remember the king. David numbered the people. We have two accounts. One in Kings, one in one in First Samuel, one in Chronicles. And one in Samuel, one in Chronicles. One place it says 
the Lord motivated David. The other place, Satan. Which was it? It was both. When God uses the devil as his agent, Isaiah tells us even the devil is a servant of God. He can only do what the Lord allows him. Ultimately, God is totally sovereign, ultimately. And you have to understand how frightening this is. I once heard Roger Forster in England, who's now tied in with the Pensacola crowd. He tried to defend Toronto as a mixture of bad and good because it was both the Lord and the devil who inspired David to take the census. Well, it's from the devil, but it's also from God. That was his thinking. When God sends a demonic deception, it's a judgment. These things, like you saw in Pensacola, this and all this, this, this stuff is not simply deception. It's a judgment. It's a judgment. It's a judgment on the assemblies of God. They wouldn't listen to Larry Thomas. They, they didn't learn the lessons of Jim Baker. <laughs> the very leadership who was warning against Toronto when it happened in their own church, then they were for it. It was a judgment. The worst deception of all is when God sends it. It's much more dangerous than the demonic deception. Let's look further. Let's go back to 1 Kings look more. <clears throat> this gets so frightening when you have a guy like Roger Foster, who I think is out I know he's out to lunch anyway. He's doctrinally ignorant. Saying there's something to be of God and the devil at the same time? Yeah, it can, but not in the way he thinks. There's people who defend false, have defended proven false prophets, like, uh, uh, what's his name in Kansas City? The, the one caught in morality. Bob Jones. They're saying he's a pipe that's open at both ends. Sometimes it's the devil, sometimes it's God. That's the defense of him. That's the defense of him. They are even accepting this. Let's look. Verse 23, Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in your mouth, all these your prophets, and all these your prophets. And the Lord has profaned disaster against you. He might have been outnumbered 400 to 1, but he was the true prophet. Pay attention. When this happens, when it happens, God warns the elect. The Lord does nothing without revealing it to his servants, the prophets. Nothing. He might be the one prophet who's the true one, and there's 400 bad ones. He might be outnumbered 400 to 1, but the faithful will know that he's the one who's speaking God's word. Whenever this happens, when God sends this deception of the judgment, he reveals it to the faithful. The faithful will always know. Okay? Don't worry about you being taken in. If you're faithful, if your heart is right, you'll know the truth. Sometimes somebody in ignorance can be taken into deception, a young believer. But if their heart is right, God will show them. God will always show them. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what it was. In a case in Australia, a guy was in a motorcycle gang. He was a criminal. He was wonderfully saved by Jesus. Him and his wife, and they lost a child. 
became Christians. They loved the baby, the dead, the Lord took the baby, but these are wonderful people. All life transformed. And he was in that Lion of Judah motorcycle gang, the Australian chapter that you saw on the Rodney Brown Copeland video. They supposedly had a, a prison ministry. But they were into all the pain and all the rest of it. And he knew something was wrong as a young believer. He didn't know what it was. And he was coming by a, a fish and chip shop in Australia. They imitate the English culture a little bit. And he saw somebody there, wasn't dressed so nicely, in old shaggy clothes, who was hungry and didn't know who he was. And he said, can I buy you some, something to eat? The person said thank you to him. And he bought the person some fish and chips and something to drink and said, here you are. And he didn't tell him the gospel. And the guy just goes, Jesus is coming soon. Before he can begin witnessing, the guy just gives it to him. He's going to witness to him now. And the guy just goes, Jesus is coming soon. Beware of the false prophets, the doctors. And he walks away. Never saw him before that, never saw him again. He didn't get to witness to him. Just gave him the food. He's going to witness to him. He said, beware of the false prophets, the doctors. He freaks him out. He goes home. And he looks on the shelf and all the books and tapes. These guys all have make-believe degrees. Dr. Rodney Howard Brown, Dr. Jerry Savile. They're not real doctors. <laughs> and he goes, of course. Of course. I don't know what it was, and I, uh, I say this very humbly. The next day, somebody gave him one of my tapes, talking about how and, and he threw it all out, and he, he contacted some friends of our ministry somehow, and, and he contacted Philip Powell's people or something, and he got into a good church. But he didn't know. Possibly, but he knew his heart. And I have met so many cases. He, he, he says that guy might have been an angel. You know, Paul says you can entertain angels unaware. Maybe it was. Maybe it was. That guy didn't know him. He didn't know that guy. But anyway, it continues. Then Zedekiah in verse 24, the son of Hanana came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek. And said, how did the Spirit of the Lord pass for me to speak to you? Micaiah said, behold, you shall see in that day when you enter at an inner room to hide yourself. Then the king of Israel said, take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son. And say, thus says the king, put this man in prison and feed him sparingly with bread and water until I return. And Micaiah said, if indeed you return safely, the Lord's not spoken by me. <laughs> And he said, listen, all you people. Always the short test of a false prophet. Does he say things in the name of the Lord that fail to happen? Their doctrines are wrong and they predict things. How do I know Rick Joyner is a false prophet? His predictions don't happen. Why? Because his doctrine is wrong. Second Peter 2.1 How do I know Jevil Coates is a false prophet? Benny Hinn is a false prophet? How do I know that? How do I know that King Clement is a false prophet? Because of the things he prophesied that didn't happen. Like with his message to Evander Hollyfield's wife. She was pregnant carrying Evander Hollyfield's baby. And King Clement prophesied to her on TBN, this will be your greatest year of blessing in your house, will never know shame. 
At the same time, two other women are carrying as they have the Holofield babies. She's an associate of Benny Hinn, one of Hinn's friends. And she gets divorced. Boy, this thing, you're carrying a man's baby and so are two other women? I'd say that's no shame, wouldn't you? False prophet. If you come back, I'm a false prophet. Notice only a true prophet would say that. Only a true prophet would put his neck on the line. Most one wouldn't. They'd sweep it under the rug. Ezekiel 13, they whitewash over it. Let's look. So the king of Israel and the king of Judah went up against Ramat Gilead. Next characteristic of a false leader. He will reject Seek to discredit, seek to discredit, and persecute true prophets or true prophets. And if you understand this, you get somebody else to do it. Another characteristic of a false prophet is the heavy shepherding. The people they can control. One characteristic of heavy shepherding, Nicolaitanism, is they have gophers, messengers, do the dirty work for them. They don't have the guts to confront the true prophet themselves or send somebody else to do the dirty work. Okay? False leaders know there's something wrong with them. They're really afraid because they know what they are. So they surround themselves with people weaker than themselves who they can manipulate. Separate subject. So reject, try to discredit and persecute true prophets. Then what happens? The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I'll disguise myself and go into battle, but you put on your robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went to battle. Now the king of Aram had commanded the 32 captains of the chariot, saying, Do not fight with small and great, but with the king of Israel alone. So it came about when the captains of the chariot saw Jehoshaphat, that they said, Surely it's the king of Israel. And they turned aside to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. And it happened, when the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, that they turned back from pursuing him. Now a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. So he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and take me out of the fight, for I'm severely wounded. They are out to use others to Save their own neck. You know, I watched once on the news, Saddam Hussein, afraid of assassination, paranoid. He has doubles. He's getting limousines, he's getting a of limousines. Sometimes there will be 12 Mercedes limousines with police escorts leaving, going all at the same time to the same location with doubles in them. 
Now look at this. Here, you dress like a king. I won't. <laughs> in case they go gunning for the head honcho, you'll get taken out of the game instead of me. Why couldn't Josiah, uh, Jehoshaphat see this? Well, he thought, but it was too late. Why can't, after what happened to PPL Club, why can't people like Josh McDowell and, 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 Chuck, and Chuck Smith and the other decent people on TBN realize what they're doing? When the thing goes down, and it will go down, the same as PPL went down, TBN will go down. They'll go down with it. Dorf and all those guys went down with Jim Baker. They'll go down with them. Larry Thomas bailed out of Jimmy Swaggart Ministries. You know why? Because wasn't going to go down with them. Good guys get involved with these bad guys. They'll go down, and you'll go down with them. They're only using you. Oh, we're all right because he endorses our ministry. He endorses our ministry. Our cause is right. Look, King Jehoshaphat is fighting with us. The true custodian of the house of David. He's with us. He has the, he has the ark of the covenant. He's God's man. He's with us. We must be right. Oh, look. Chuck Smith is on TV and they must be all right. That's the thinking. They go down. And it's not nice when they go down. They're only using others to protect their own neck. Jehoshaphat, however, cries out. God protects him. He was naive, undiscerning, but not wrong in his motives. His heart was righteous. He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord saved his neck. But something happened to Ahab. There was a chink in the armor. The arrow got him in the chest. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6, please. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God. Verse 11, take up the full armor of God. Verse 13, that you may be able to resist the evil day. Having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, having goited your loins with truth. Truth comes first. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Oh, he looked righteous. Objectively, his cause was righteous. He was fighting for the glory of the true God, he said. Capturing God's land back from the pagan, he said. His cause was in some way righteous, but there was a chink in the armor. <laughs> didn't protect him. If you're not wearing the breastplate of righteousness, you'll have no protection. Most people who take bullets take it here. He lacked righteousness. Oh, he looked righteous, but there was a chink in it. You know, the areas of vulnerability towards sin in our lives, anger, lust, whatever your problem is, greed, whatever your thing is, that's the the chink in the armor. That's what the devil's going to aim for. He knows just where to shoot us. He knows our weak points. The areas in our lives, we act righteousness, 
It was only the mercy of the Lord that got Jehoshaphat out of there. <coughs> now again, the same as you have synoptic gospels, three and four accounts of something, remember you have the same structure in the Old Testament. You have kings, chronicles, and whatever prophet or prophets prophesied in that time period. When you see the Holy Spirit putting two or three or more accounts of something in the Bible, it's important. Let's look at this, as it were, synoptically in Second Chronicles and Conclusion, chapter 18. Verse 31, Jehoshaphat cried out to the Lord, and the Lord delivered him from him. Then it happened that the captains of the chariot saw it was not the king of Israel that they had and turned back from pursuing him. And a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in the chink of the armor. So he said to the driver of the chariot, Turn around and take me out of the fight. I'm severely wounded. The battle raged that day, and the king of Israel propped himself up in his chariot in front of the Arameans until the evening. And at sunset he died. Still trying to hold face. Still trying to look like he could do it. But there was a chink in his armor. Now look at chapter 19, verse 1. What happens next? Then Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to the house of Jerusalem, only because he cried out to the Lord. And Jehu, a true prophet, the son of Hanani, Hanani the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? And so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord, but there's some good in you, etc. Why are you getting involved with that jerk for to begin with? He's not your brother, he's a false brother. He hates God. He's wicked. You yourself will bring judgment on yourself. You yourself will invoke the wrath of the Lord. Should you help the wicked? Should you love those who hate the Lord? When a man will call the teaching of Jesus excrement, he hates the Lord. He hates Jesus Christ. My people, your people, my army is your army. That's what Jehoshaphat said. Almost cost him his neck. Only the Lord saved him. These decent men who get involved with these programs, these ministers paternals with the Monsignor and the liberals and the false prophets in the name of unity, they'll go down. And the good men will go down with them. Maybe if they cry out to the Lord, the Lord will save their neck. But there'll be a rebuke involved. Why did you get involved with those people to begin with? What, what are you doing on there? What are you doing with a man like Benny Hinn? What are you involved with TBN or Pat Robinson for? Why are you involved with those people? Very briefly, look at Jude's epistle. He warns about false believers among us, and one of the things is this. 
Verse 12, these men are those who are hidden wreaths. It could be translated wreaths from the Greek. Remember the wreath? What Paul hit and the ship hit in Malta? Wreaths are very dangerous when you have a tumultuous sea, when the sea is stormy because you can't see them. They can rip the, the, the bottom right out of a yacht or a boat. They're hidden. You can't see them. That's what makes them dangerous. These men are dangerous. They'll sink your ship. Second John. I'm sorry, third John. Verse seven. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Watch out in verse eight. That you do not lose what we have accomplished, but you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching, does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and doesn't bring this teaching, don't receive him into your house. Don't give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil. When these men are heretics, you even greet them, you're participating in their evil. I don't greet a Pat Robinson or a Jerry Falwell. Jerry Falwell wants to say Reverend Moon's an unsung hero. He's no longer a Christian preacher. I don't greet that man. I don't want to participate in that evil. It's not what I say. It's what God says. They come to you bringing a different teaching? Only come and greet him. What will happen if you do? Look at verse 8. You'll lose what you accomplish. These men have built good ministries. They have good names. They will lose it. When Baker went down, anybody connected with him lost their reputation forever. <laughs> These guys are going to go down. They'll lose what they built. Romans 16, 17, Mark a factious man, one who departs from the apostles' teaching, the Greek word, dichotomy. Let them go that way, you go the other way. Go away from the teachings of the New Testament, go the other direction. Get away. Mark the factious man. The word for factious. Dicos to the economy. There must be factions among you to prove which is true. The word for factions in Timothy? Heresies. Heresies. Get away from them. It's a reef. It'll sink your ship. Don't even greet them. That's not guilt by association. It's guilt by cooperation. It has nothing to do with them. They're going down to the enemies of Christ. Their wicked men have nothing to do with them. Nothing. What's wrong with you, asked Jehu? What are you doing, Jehoshaphat? Now, there's some good in you. There's some good. There's some good in these men like that. Charles Stanley, his wife just divorced him. All of a sudden, their own lives begin going down. You begin to compromise, your own life begins to fall apart. Chuck Smith, and both of his sons are divorced. Your own life will begin to go down when you begin to compromise. 
terrible. Terrible. That's what happened to Jehoshaphat. That's what will happen to any church, any preacher, any Christian leader today who goes the same route. These guys are not your brethren. They hate the Lord. They're false brethren. They have an agenda. They all behave the same way. False repentances. They surround themselves by people who tell them what they want to hear. To hype the people up. They will reject and persecute the people who tell the truth. And they're only out for their own neck. A good guy gets involved with a bad guy. You're sailing your yacht over reefs. You've gone into a wrong, wrong way. You've done something that nobody in their right mind should ever do. But they do it. How can God say, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? So bring the wrath of God on yourself. Love the wicked and hate the Lord. I long for unity of the Spirit. I crave the unity of the Spirit. I, every day of my Christian life, want to see the unity of the Spirit. But he's the Spirit of truth. He is not the Spirit of error. God bless. See you tomorrow.